So 2 Chronicles chapter 20 um, is where we're going to be. We've spent the last two years, you and I, um, living in the disruption of the pandemic and all the wild and varied reactions of our increasingly post-Christian society. Our society, just like every society before us the world over, um, does not have what it takes to live, thrive, or even survive in our own strength. The best that we can do as societies is build towers of Babel, which ultimately lead to greater confusion. And for some reason, our society has built lots of different towers um, in response to the pandemic, but they're all just Babel. So we as a church, followers of Christ, we are trying um, to spend this year figuring out how to strengthen ourselves in the Lord. And uh, we want to learn how to tend to our inner life experience or increase our buoyancy and resilience and bounce back from the disruption and depression that we've all experienced, whether we uh, feel like we've done well or not, whether it's been easy or not. We all are a bit dented, um, if we're being honest, from the last couple of years, and, and that's okay. That's okay, but how do we strengthen ourselves in the Lord for the days ahead instead of find ourselves falling away or experiencing failure of heart or failure of nerve? Um, so far this year, what we've done is we've kind of steered our ship into some spiritual practices from the life of Jesus and the followers of Christ over the centuries. We've spent time fasting and talking about fasting. Um, we talked about prayer in regards to that and how it connects with fasting. We had a Sunday where it was all about rejoicing that I mentioned before, figuring out how to enter that space of joy and rejoice in the Lord always. Um, whether things are good or bad, it's a practice that we're supposed to do as followers of Christ. And uh, then we've been in this practice of worship for the last few weeks. Um, I'm really excited about what we're doing next, starting next week. Um, we're going to be entering into a, ser a sermon series where basically we're just going to try and saturate ourselves with the goodness of God. Um, we're going to train ourselves in the gospel um, we're going to hear about the goodness of God throughout the history in the scriptures, but also hear some testimonies of what he's doing right here today in our fellowship. And uh, hopefully it'll really kind of build some of that resilience and buoyancy as well. Um, and two weeks ago, Ryan, in this worship series, he brought, us, brought out the truth that um, true worship is, it requires sacrifice, um, that, that there is a reality to when we're trying to worship God, it, it should cost us something. Um, and that comes a little bit from this concept where David says, I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings with that which costs me nothing. I thought he did a beautiful job of that. And then last week, Jeff brought out how worship requires pause and interruption. Um, and uh, Eugene Peterson, I, there's this quote from him I think is so good. It's a little dangerous, so watch out. It says, worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. And what he's acknowledging there is that we are preoccupied with ourselves. And I'll broaden that a little bit. We are preoccupied with creation. Everything in this world, the creation. We are so preoccupied with creation that sometimes we forget to make a little space for acknowledgement of creator. And it really does lead to gross idolatry where we worship the creation instead of the creator, and that, that's, a, that's an idolatry type thing. But, but I love the way he phrases that. He, he really focuses on the preoccupation with ourselves. Sometimes we need to interrupt that and give a little space for worship to put God in his place. Um, it's actually 
we always need to do that. But he says it nicely because he's a nice guy. Um, so today we're going to conclude our sermon series on worship by looking at what worship is a little bit more. When is the right time to worship? And ultimately, if I don't take too long on those things, how to worship um, as our conclusion. So we're going to read a big chunk of, of scriptures here, but we're all grown-ups, right? If you're a kid in here, you don't have to say yes to that. But even if you're a kid in here, we're going to read a big passage of scripture, a lot of words, Bible words. And uh, we're just going to have to stick with it and kind of get the whole thing. Um, I know we're a soundbite society at this point, but, but I thought it'd be good to just kind of read this whole thing so we get the full context of what's going on. And uh, if you need to like kind of smack your cheeks a little bit through in about verse 12, that's okay. We're going all the way through 27, 28, sorry, even 28. Okay, so 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1. After this, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Mayunites came to make war on Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah, which represents the people of God. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. Alarmed, keyword, Jehoshaphat resolved, keyword, to inquire of the Lord and proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the new courtyard and said, um, so basically what's happening is Jehoshaphat got some really, really, really horrible news, some really bad news, some desperate, dire news that there was this vast army, much vaster than anything he could muster, and they were coming to wipe them out, to destroy them completely. And not only that, but basically they were in, in, in Getty. And so, I mean, a, a way that we could look at it is if all the states of the Union of America decided they were all gonna band together and just annihilate Arizona, just destroy Arizona. That would be concerning for us, obviously, and then the next part of the news was they were in Anthem. <laughs> All of them. Right? And they were headed this way. It would make it a little bit more dire, a little bit more scary. Um, and that's what was going on in this situation. And in that news, in that place of alarming, um, Jehoshaphat worshipped. His response to that was worship. And he says, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God of who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. O oh, our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? This is deep, deep theology, by the way, that he's putting forth for his own good and for the good of his people. They have lived in it and have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether the sword or judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress, and you will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance. O oh, our God, will you not judge them? 
For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. So in response to the bad news, Jehoshaphat worshipped. And he worshipped by declaring who God is and declaring who they are not. That they have no power in this situation. He worshipped not by just pretending that there wasn't anything bad going on, but by reminding God of his promises and therefore reminding him and his people of the promises of God and the goodness of God that has come before. He worshipped. He worshipped. And then it says in verse 13, and all the men of Judah with their wives and children and little ones stood there before the Lord. It's an intense moment. I love the way he depicts that. He says, the men, the wives, the children, and the little ones, they just all say laud for a moment. And say, God, we, we have nothing, and so we're just here to hear from you. And God, who is so faithful and wonderful, says in verse 14, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jeel, son of Mataniah, a Levite and descendant of Asaph, and he stood in the assembly. He said, Listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. That is not sounding good. He was like, cool, this sounds good. And then he's like, tomorrow, you take your tiny little army with your tiny little swords and your tiny little everything, and you go fight this huge giant army that's got big swords and big everything. So he was like, yeah, the Lord's going to fight. And then he's like, well. And so that's very, very challenging. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up the pass at Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge of the desert of Jeriel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out and face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down and worshiped before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with very loud voice. So the situation changed. There's no longer an enemy. There's nothing to be afraid of anymore, right? Nope. Nope. Still got all of America and Anthem about to destroy us. Still got all the trouble, all the bad news. Still in the impossible, dire situation. The only thing that changed was now they have a word from the Lord. And the word from the Lord is not all good because it still means you have to go and face this enemy. And the plan, the battle plan, the sneaky, you know, God-ordained strategy that he has given you is you go and you face them and you stand still. That's a horrible battle plan. And that's the battle plan. And in the face of all of this, with all the fear, with all of this, Jehoshaphat and the people worship.
they worship. And the way they worship is they stand and they bow and they, with very loud voice, shout out the praises of God and declare who he is. Then, early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. As they set out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem. Have faith in the Lord your God, and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets, and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out at the head of the army, saying, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. So, Jehoshaphat gets really bad news and worships. The only thing that changed was now you inserted a word from the Lord from some prophet, priesty guy. And he worships. And now they're being obedient to what the Lord had put on the prophet's heart to tell them. And they're stepping into this danger. They're stepping into this fear. They're stepping out in obedience with what God has asked them to do, not knowing the outcome at all. And Jehoshaphat consults with the people. I've never read that, I mean, I've read that verse a thousand times. I've never paid attention to that verse. And the people, I guess, the people tell Jehoshaphat, why don't we do this? Why don't we get all those guys who can sing well and can jam? The ones that probably are not the biggest and the strongest. Not saying you can't, you know, some of those bass players, they are just ripped beyond belief, no doubt about it. But, but it's possible that they weren't necessarily the most ready to fight. And the people said, let's put them out front so that everyone knows that worshiping Jesus is the most important thing to us. I always thought the Lord told them to do that. I always thought that was so cool. The Lord says, put the worshipers out front and we're going to go out and worship and that's going to be our battle. That's going to be our response. But it says right there. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed the men to sing before the Lord of the splendor of his holiness and to go out in front of the army. I think that's so awesome because I'm a pastor of, of a people. This church, we're a people. And, and it's so fun for me to be able to think back at the responses of so many of you through this troubling time in our society. And you guys have just wanted to make sure Jesus is the head in everything we do. And it's been awesome. But I love that. So that's what they decided. So the response, even in the obedience, was worship. And as they begin to sing, verse 22, and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were, living, who were invading Judah, and they were defeated. The men of Ammon and Moab rose up against the men of Mount Seir to destroy and annihilate them. After they finished slaughtering the men from Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. So Jehoshaphat and his men went to carry off their plunder, and they found among them a great amount of equipment. I think that's just one of the funniest Bible verses in the world. They're like, look at all this equipment. 
Um, and clothing and articles of value, more than they could take away. There was so, so much plunder that it took three days to collect it. On the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Berachah, which means praise, um, where they praised the Lord, and this is why it's called the Valley of Berachah, which means praise to this day. Then, led by Jehoshaphat and all the men of Judah and Jerusalem, returned joyfully to Jerusalem, um, for the Lord had given them cause to rejoice over their enemies. They entered Jerusalem and went to the temple of the Lord with harps and lutes and trumpets. So in response to seeing the goodness of God show up, they worshiped. That's the easy one. And if that's all we had in this story, I don't know if I would like this story. But by the time they get to this place where they're worshiping because of God coming through for them, we've already seen that this is a deep practice for them. That they know that the right time is always to worship. When the bad news comes, it's a really important time to worship. When the word of the Lord comes, it's a really important time to worship. When you're stepping out in faith and you're scared, you're really unsure, it's a great time to worship. And then when the Lord comes through, it's a really good time to worship. So when is the right time? Always, no doubt about it. So I think the question for us is a little bit more, like, what is worship? And really trying to get down to the the core reality of what is. What are the ingredients that actually make worship? And then how do we put that into practice regularly, not just one hour a week on a Sunday morning or as long as someone's got a guitar? How do we worship? Because it's so much more than that. So for me, I think ultimately worship is acknowledging God. If you want to break it down to something real simple. Acknowledging God is sovereign and we are not. That is the first step of worship every single time. Acknowledging God is sovereign and we are not. Worship is prayer. It's communicating with God. And prayer, we know, is getting into alignment with God. That's really the whole purpose of prayer, is we pray so that we can begin to understand what God's heart is so that our heart can line up with that. That's what prayer is about. It's not about rubbing the lamp saying, Get to, so the genie gives you what you want. It's about getting our wants in line with what God wants. And then all of a sudden, prayer becomes powerful. And so, because worship is prayer, and prayer is getting in line with God, then ultimately, worship is about getting in line with reality. Because God is the only one who has perfect perspective. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He's the Lord of the spirit and the natural. And those who worship him are supposed to worship in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in reality. And you're never closer to true reality than when you're worshiping. And for that matter, you're never closer to your true identity than when you're worshiping. It's all about reality, getting into reality. It's not denying that there isn't pain and hardship in this world, but it's bringing God into the picture. And the truth is, no matter how bad a situation, God's goodness is greater. No matter how impossible a situation, God's power is greater. No matter how unjust a situation, God knows how to make all things work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
Worship is putting God in the picture. It's putting God in the picture in the right place, which is on the throne, in the highest place, in his rightful place. And that's what Jehoshaphat did. Here was this picture that was being painted by these men who came to report a reality that was going on. And Jehoshaphat did not deny, oh, never mind, don't worry about them. That's not anything we should worry about. They can't do anything to us. No, he didn't say anything. But what he did is he brought God into the picture and say, yes, this is true. This is reality. But it's not complete without a true understanding that God is the one who is over everything. He is the one that has all the power in his hands. That was worship. That is worship. Now, just in case you haven't found yourself literally in ancient, you know, Middle East, and then there's an army coming at you, and you don't have a king who's doing a good job and all of those things, I'll tell you how it's kind of worked out in my life one time. And this might not ever sound like worship to you. It might never be what you would think of, but this was, this was a really important moment of worship in my life. And I, I, was, I, was, uh, I was very brokenhearted. I had made some decisions that had left me in a place where I literally thought the best thing would be to just like get out of town and go somewhere where nobody knows me and just kind of start over. Um, and my heart was broken and I was feeling a lot of guilt and shame. And uh, yeah, I was just in a really, really um, dark place. And I remember sitting there, um, I was actually in a seminary class. <laughs> which is kind of funny. And I wasn't paying any attention to what they were saying because I was so distraught in my own soul. And I remember I had a blank piece of paper in front of me and, uh, and I just started like drawing a picture of a dead tree. And, and for whatever reason, it was like, this is what, this is, this, this, it just was like, it was like therapeutic for me. It was like, okay, this is what I feel. This is what is real. This is what I know. And I was just, I drew a picture. And I'm a horrible drawer. So it was like a dead, ugly tree that like a first grader was drawing. Um, and so it was just this really pitiful, disgusting, dead, lifeless, ugly tree. And the more I drew it, the more I was just like, yes, this is exactly how I feel. This is real. This is authentic. This is true. This is reality. Um, and there was something that was therapeutic about that. And, and then I remembered in, in, in that moment, I, like the Spirit of God coming to me in just a whisper and saying, you should put a little leaf on that tree, just one leaf. And I was like, I'm not putting a leaf on the tree. There's no leaves on the tree. And it was like, there's probably one leaf on the tree. And I was like, there's no leaf on the tree. It was funny, I was just having this for, it's probably the best seminary class I could have ever experienced um, and had nothing to do with what was happening. But I, I was just in this battle because I did not want to put a leaf on this tree. And yet, at some point, if I was really being honest, if I was truly being authentic, I had to put a leaf on the tree. And so I drew a little leaf on the tree, and it was ugly, and it was dead. But it was enough. And the Lord was okay with that. Stop bothering me. 
And what I was doing in that is I was worshiping with a very broken and contrite spirit. I was, I was allowing or bringing or acknowledging that God was in the picture. And there was even part of me that didn't want God to be in the picture, which I know is bizarre, but that's how much pain I was in. But in that moment, I put a little leaf on the tree because if I was truly being authentic, God was in the picture. And there's this, there's this tendency, there's this kind of cultural thing that's happening right now where we, we are wanting to be authentic. And so even in worship times and all these things, and I get it, I mean, I'm, I, I, there's a challenge there because sometimes we're all singing like, everything's so great, yeah, God is so good, and, and yet it, it's like, no, I don't feel that, I'm far from that place. I'm not happy, I'm hurting, I'm ruined. Somebody I love dearly is really going through grief. And it's hard for me to sing. And so the deep magic of our society is they're saying you need to be authentic. You need to be true. But what we need to understand is that there is a deeper magic from the dawn of time that has to remember to put God in the picture. And so it's right for you to come to this space and be like, I'm hurting, I don't feel good. But it is not right for you to stop there. because you need to bring God into the picture. That's what worship is all about. This is the way N.T. Wright says it. He says, if your idea of God or your idea of salvation offered in Christ is vague or remote, your idea of worship will be fuzzy and ill-informed. The closer you get to the truth, the clearer becomes the beauty and the more you will find worship welling up within you. Because worship is a step into the deepest, truest reality, which is not a denial of this world and what it is, but it's, a, it's an understanding and acceptance that there's more than just what we see and feel and think. Eugene Peterson again, he says, every call to worship is a call into the real world. I encounter such constant and widespread lying about reality each day and meet with such skilled and systematic distortion of the truth that I'm always in danger of losing my grip on reality. Welcome to America, 2020, 2021. But the reality, of course, is that God is sovereign and Christ is savior and everything else is a Babylon lie. The reality is that prayer is my mother tongue, the Eucharist my basic food, and the reality is that baptism, not Myers-Briggs, defines who I am. And again, that's not a denial of other things, but it's going to true reality. It's bringing God into the picture. Whoo! That is some goodness right there. That is some goodness right there. Dallas Willard, he says it a little differently um, in his kind of helping us to understand what worship is. Our part in thus practicing the presence of God is to direct and redirect our minds constantly to him. In the early time of our practicing this worship this way, we may well be challenged by our burdensome habits of dwelling on things less than God, 
But these are habits, not the law of gravity, and they can be broken. A new grace-filled habit, that which we would call worship, will replace the former ones as we take the initial steps toward keeping God before us, and soon our minds will return to, the God, to God as the needle of a compass constantly returns to the north. This is the goal of us developing a practice of worship, not a one hour a week as long as the lights and sounds aren't too loud or too bright or too little or too small. Like, this is the cultivation of constantly bringing God to the forefront of our mind, constantly acknowledging God in all of our ways, constantly bringing God into the picture, whatever the picture is that you might be experiencing that day. And this is worship. And this is something that will greatly increase the strength in your life, the buoyancy in life, the resilience in your life. This is a great way to bounce back. So when we are worshiping, we're closest to reality and closest to our true identity because ultimately, you are a part of the creation. You are not creator. You have been created and the main reason you were created is to know and enjoy God, the creator. So when you are doing that, You've never been closer to your true identity. I heard a guy talking a little bit about the ocean and surfers this week, and it made me think a lot about this. So the ocean is a big, giant situation, right? And there are a lot of things in that ocean that can kill you. True? I mean, sharks could kill you, or mess you up real good. But that's just one of the many things that is there that can kill you. And not only that, but the ocean is, is powerful, right? Like it's, it is powerful and vast. They never turn your back on the ocean, right? They, they say that because the ocean just grabs you and slams you around, smashes you, and kills people all the time. And then you have these surfer guys, or girls, whatever they might be, and they get this little board, and they just have little shorts, and they just go out there into this, into this vastness, into this power, into this danger. And they go in there and they just dance, right? And they just catch right on the edge, right on the fringe of all this power. They just get on that and they just kind of play and enjoy. And, it, and, and if you talk to a surfer, in some ways they're saying it's like the ocean is calling them, like the ocean is inviting them. The ocean wants them to come and play just on those outskirts, just on the edges there. And be able to experience just a taste of the power without it being too much. A taste of the danger without it being too much. And they have to hold that in very, very strong reference because if you're a surfer and you start to kind of try and do your own thing, you're trying to get a little too fancy, you stop getting focused, you could get smashed real good. And somehow that's exactly what worship is. There's this, there's this force, there is this power that is calling us, it's beckoning to us, come. Come into this danger. Come into this power. Come into this space that honestly you have no business coming into. And yet come and play on the edges and experience a little bit of the exhilaration of what it means to know me and to experience my presence. And yes, we have to hold it in reverence. We have to approach him correctly. 
but it's this beautiful, beautiful connection. That's what worship is. Saying, okay, God, we're gonna come as close as you allow us to come. And we're gonna sit in this space and we're gonna play and we're gonna dance and we're gonna participate because we know that you are so much more than anything else and so much sufficient for every need that we could ever have. And even if we just get to be on the edge and just every once in a while get a little splash, that's more than enough. This is worship. So when is the right time to worship? Jehoshaphat and the people they told us is always, all the time, every time. What is worship? We got some help along those lines. And so then how do we worship? Well, how do we worship when we look at this story and we look at the biblical teaching on this? Um, there's a lot of standing in this passage. And so these guys, you know, they're like, let's stand and worship. It's like, don't tell me what to do. I stand when I want to stand. I'm more of a sitting worshiper. It's cool, whatever. But just know that, this, that standing was a really important posture for worship in the scriptures. Obviously, not everyone's able to stand, but it's still there. Another thing they did was they stood still. They even had the little ones join them in that and taking some time. What would that be like in your home? Say, hey, family, children, we're gonna take a time of worship. I'm gonna declare who the Lord is and we're just gonna say la. We're gonna stand still. It's good practice, good practice. They bowed down, they shouted with a loud voice, Jesus, when the night terrors came. They sang, they gave thanks, they used instruments, they acknowledged God, they applied really good theology, all of those things. And so ultimately, that's what we're looking to do. We're looking to be a people who worship. And this week, I would, I'd, I'd really encourage you to maybe put some time in your calendar, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whenever, and just make that a priority to, to, to create that space, to interrupt all of your preoccupations and make a little space to just really declare who God is and stand or sit or kneel or be still, or shout, or pull out an instrument, or play a song, and worship. And when I think of Jesus' life, and really what, to me, exemplified the greatest moment of worship in his life, which you could probably pick a lot of different ones, I think it, th this story and, and what I've been through reminds me of that time in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before he was going to the cross, and he had got the bad news, he knew the Father's plan. He knew what he was going to have to go through. He knew he was going to the cross. And he was praying with great agony and alarm and stress and angst, so much so that he was actually sweating blood because the stress was so great. And in that space, he said, Father, please take this cup from me. Please let there be another way. And yet he knew the answer to that question. And ultimately, in a moment of real, deep, profound, beautiful worship between the Son and the Father, Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done. I acknowledge that you, in the picture, need the highest place. 
And your will is more important than what I feel, what I want, what I experience, what I think, what I know from my perspective. And so I choose to worship you. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to come before our God and say, not my will, but yours, not my wants, but yours. Not my feelings, but your promises. Not my thoughts, but your truth. Not project self, but I live to glorify you. And oftentimes those are broken hallelujahs. But there's nothing more beautiful in the ears of our Father than a broken hallelujah. Let's pray. Jesus, we do want to worship you and give you the highest place. Lord, please forgive us for so often being preoccupied with creation, so often for trying to be authentic but forgetting to insert you into the picture. And Lord, I really do pray that you would help us to be true worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And that this would be a practice of our lives, not just a, a, a routine or tradition we go through once a week. Thank you, Lord.